Chapter 9 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 9. Whatever rises to the surface in the dialogue of the Apollonian part of Greek tragedy appears simple, transparent, beautiful. In this sense, the dialogue is a copy of the Hellene whose nature reveals itself in the dance because in the dance the greatest energy is merely potential but betrays itself nevertheless in flexible and vivacious movements the language of the sophoclean heroes for instance surprises us by its apollonian precision and clearness so that we at once imagine we see into the innermost recesses of their being and marvel not a little that the way to these recesses is so short. But if for the moment we disregard the character of the hero which rises to the surface and grows visible, and which at bottom is nothing but the light picture cast on a dark wall, that is, appearance through and through, if rather we enter into the myth which projects itself in these bright mirrorings, we shall of a sudden experience a phenomenon which bears a reverse relation to one familiar in optics. When, after a vigorous effort to gaze into the sun, we turn away blinded, we have dark-colored spots before our eyes as restoratives, so to speak. While, on the contrary, those light-picture phenomena of the Sophoclean hero, in short, the Apollonian of the mask, are the necessary productions of a glance into the secret and terrible things of nature. As it were, shining spots to heal the eye which dire night has seared. Only in this sense can we hope to be able to grasp the true meaning of the serious and significant notion of, quote, Greek cheerfulness, end quote. While of course we encounter the misunderstood notion of this cheerfulness, as resulting from a state of unendangered comfort, on all the ways and paths of the present time. The most sorrowful figure of the Greek stage, the hapless Oedipus, was understood by Sophocles as the noble man who, in spite of his wisdom, was destined to error and misery. But nevertheless, through his extraordinary sufferings, ultimately exerted a magical, wholesome influence on all around him, which continues effective even after his death. The noble man does not sin. This is what the thoughtful poet wishes to tell us. All laws, all natural order, yea, the moral world itself may be destroyed through his action. But through this very action a higher magic circle of influences is brought into play, which establish a new world on the ruins of the old that has been overthrown. This is what the poet, insofar as he is at the same time a religious thinker, wishes to tell us. As poet he shows us first of all a wonderfully complicated legal mystery which the judge slowly unravels, link by link, to his own destruction. The truly Hellenic delight at this dialectical loosening is so great that a touch of surpassing cheerfulness is thereby communicated to the entire play, which everywhere 
blunts the edge of the horrible presuppositions of the procedure. In the, quote, Oedipus et Colonus, end quote, we find the same cheerfulness, elevated, however, to an infinite transfiguration. In contrast to the aged king, subjected to an excess of misery and exposed solely as a sufferer to all that befalls him, we have here a super-mundane cheerfulness, which descends from a divine sphere and intimates to us that in his purely passive attitude the hero attains his highest activity, the influence of which extends far beyond his life, while his earlier conscious musing and striving led him only to passivity. Thus, then, the legal knot of the fable of Oedipus, which to mortal eyes appears indissolubly entangled, is slowly unraveled, and the profoundest human joy comes upon us in the presence of this divine counterpart of dialectics. If this explanation does justice to the poet, it may still be asked whether the substance of the myth is thereby exhausted, and here it turns out that the entire conception of the poet is nothing but the light picture which healing nature holds up to us after a glance into the abyss. Oedipus, the murderer of his father, the husband of his mother. Oedipus, the interpreter of the riddle of the Sphinx. What does the mysterious triad of these deeds of destiny tell us? There is a primitive popular belief, especially in Persia, that a wise magi can be born only of incest, which we have forthwith to interpret to ourselves with reference to the riddle-solving and mother-marrying Oedipus, to the effect that when the boundary of the present and future, the rigid law of individuation and in general the intrinsic spell of nature, are broken by prophetic and magical powers, an extraordinary counter-naturalness, as in this case incest, must have preceded as a cause. For how else could one force nature to surrender her secrets but by victoriously opposing her, i.e., by means of the unnatural? It is this intuition which I see imprinted in the awful triad of the destiny of Oedipus, the very man who solves the riddle of nature. That double-constituted sphinx must also, as the murderer of his father and husband of his mother, break the holiest laws of nature. Indeed, it seems as if the myth sought to whisper into our ears that wisdom, especially Dionysian wisdom, is an unnatural abomination, and that whoever through his knowledge, plunges nature into an abyss of annihilation, must also experience the dissolution of nature in himself. Quote, the sharpness of wisdom turns round upon the sage. Wisdom is a crime against nature. End quote. Such terrible expressions does the myth call out to us. But the Hellenic poet touches like a sunbeam the sublime and formidable Memnonian statue of the myth, so that it suddenly begins to sound in Sophoclean melodies. With the glory of passivity I now contrast the glory of activity, 
which illuminates the Prometheus of Aeschylus. That which Aeschylus the thinker had to tell us here, but which as a poet he only allows us to surmise by his symbolic picture, the youthful Goethe succeeded in disclosing to us in the daring words of his Prometheus. Quote, Here sit I, forming mankind in my image, a race resembling me, to sorrow and to weep, to taste, to hold, to enjoy, and not have need of thee as I. End quote. Man elevating himself to the rank of the titans, acquires his culture by his own efforts, and compels the gods to unite with him, because in his self-sufficient wisdom he has their existence and their limits in his hand. What is most wonderful, however, in this Promethean form, which according to its fundamental conception is the specific hymn of impiety, is the profound Aeschylean yearning for justice. The untold sorrow of the bold, quote, single-handed being, quote, on the one hand, and the divine need, ay, the foreboding of a twilight of the gods, on the other. The power of these two worlds of suffering constraining to reconciliation, to metaphysical oneness, all this suggests most forcibly the central and main position of the Aeschylean view of things, which sees Moira as eternal justice enthroned above gods and men. In view of the astonishing boldness with which Aeschylus places the Olympian world on his scales of justice, it must be remembered that the deep-minded Greek had an immovably firm substratum of metaphysical thought in his mysteries and that all his sceptical paroxysms could be discharged upon the Olympians. With reference to these deities, the Greek artists in particular, had an obscure feeling as to the mutual dependency, and it is just in the Prometheus of Aeschylus that this feeling is symbolized. The titanic artist found in himself the daring belief that he could create men, and at least destroy Olympian deities, namely by his superior wisdom, for which, to be sure, he had to atone by eternal suffering. The splendid caning of the great genius, bought too cheaply even at the price of eternal suffering, the stern pride of the artist, this is the essence and soul of Aeschylean poetry, while Sophocles in his Oedipus preludingly strikes up the victory song of the saint. But even this interpretation which Aeschylus has given to the myth does not fathom its astounding depth of terror. The fact is, rather that the artist's delight in unfolding, the cheerfulness of artistic creating bidding defiance to all calamity, is but a shining stellar and nebular image reflected in a black sea of sadness. The tale of Prometheus is an original possession of the entire Aryan family of races, and documentary evidence of their capacity for the profoundly tragic. Indeed, it is not improbable that this myth has the same characteristic significance for the Aryan race that the myth of the fall of man has for the Semitic and that there is a relationship between the two myths like that of 
brother and sister. The presupposition of the Promethean myth is the transcendent value which a naive humanity attached to fire as the true palladium of every ascending culture. That man, however, should dispose at will of this fire, and should not receive it only as a gift from heaven, as the igniting lightning or the warming solar flame appeared to the contemplative primordial men, as crime and robbery of the divine nature. And thus, the first philosophical problem at once causes a painful, irreconcilable antagonism between man and God, and puts, as it were, a mass of rock at the gate of every culture. The best and highest that men can acquire they obtain by a crime, and must now in their turn take upon themselves its consequences, namely the whole flood of sufferings and sorrows with which the offended celestials must visit the nobly aspiring race of man. A bitter reflection, which by the dignity it confers on crime, contrasts strangely with the Semitic myth of the fall of man, in which curiosity, beguilement, seducibility, wantonness, in short a whole series of preeminently feminine passions, were regarded as the origin of evil. What distinguishes the Aryan representation is the sublime view of active sin, as the properly Promethean virtue, which suggests at the same time the ethical basis of pessimistic tragedy as the justification of human evil, of human guilt as well as of the suffering incurred thereby. The misery in the essence of things, which the contemplative Aryan is not disposed to explain away, the antagonism in the heart of the world, manifests itself to him as a medley of different worlds. For instance, a divine and a human world, each of which is in the right individually, but as a separate existence alongside of another, has to suffer for its individuation. With the heroic effort made by the individual for universality, in his attempt to pass beyond the bounds of individuation and become the one universal being, he experiences in himself the primordial contradiction concealed in the essence of things, i.e., he trespasses and suffers. Accordingly, crime is understood by the Aryans to be a man, sin by the Semites a woman, as also the original crime is committed by man, the original sin by woman. Besides, the witch's chorus says, quote, We do not measure with such care, woman in thousand steps is there, but howsoever she hasten may, Man in one leap has cleared the way. He who understands the innermost core of the tale of Prometheus, namely the necessity of crime imposed on the titanically striving individual, will at once be conscious of the unapollonian nature of this pessimistic representation. For Apollo seeks to pacify individual beings precisely by drawing boundary lines between them 
and by again and again calling attention thereto with his requirements of self-knowledge and due proportion, as the holiest laws of the universe. In order, however, to prevent the form from congealing to Egyptian rigidity and coldness, in consequence of this Apollonian tendency, in order to prevent the extinction of the motion of the entire lake in the effort to prescribe to the individual wave its path and compass, the high tide of the Dionysian tendency destroyed from time to time all the little circles in which the one-sided Apollonian quote, will end quote, sought to confine the Hellenic world. The suddenly swelling tide of the Dionysian then takes the separate little wave mountains of individuals on its back, just as the brother of Prometheus, the Titan Atlas, does with the earth. This titanic impulse, to become as it were the Atlas of all individuals, and to carry them on broad shoulders, higher and higher, farther and farther, is what the Promethean and the Dionysian have in common. In this respect, the Aeschylean Prometheus is a Dionysian mask, while in the aforementioned profound yearning for justice, Aeschylus betrays to the intelligent observer his paternal descent from Apollo, the god of individuation and the boundaries of justice. And so the double being of the Aeschylean Prometheus, his conjoint Dionysian and Apollonian nature, might be thus expressed in an abstract formula. Quote, Whatever exists is alike just and unjust, and equally justified in both. End quote. Das ist deine Welt. Das heißt eine Welt. Translator's Note this is thy world and what a world faust end translator's note end chapter nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia